So, I have a confession. When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows was the A-Team. Any other A-Team fans out there? A-Team? That's what I'm talking about now. I didn't see very many hands, so I know some of you are insecure and you're, you're just up flying under the radar. That's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. So anyway, I've been, I pity the fool. But uh, it, I have been checking out some old reruns lately, and it's just hilarious to me, these plot lines that I, I used to think were so great. Of course, it's formulaic. There's some kind of poor person or family who are getting bullied by some organized crime group or something. So they call in the A-team. Act 1, A-team comes in. Roughs up the bullies, you think everything's going to be alright, but Act 2, the bullies come back with a vengeance and corner the A-team. And then Act 3 is my favorite, and that's where Hannibal Smith concocts a plan. And the A-team squeak by with, with, well, no finesse. There's usually about a dozen machine guns shooting, and of course nobody ever gets shot, which is a miracle. Um, but then, then at the very end, the best tagline, right? Hannibal gnawing on his cigar. I love it when a plan comes together. I love it. Anyway, plans, plans generally reveal the wisdom of the planner. Right, that's kind of plain. Uh, and as we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians the past several weeks, we've seen how he reveals God's plan, showing God's wisdom and how he chose us before the foundation of the world, how he rescues and redeems and renews how he gives grace and reconciles Jews and Gentiles and adopts us into his family. That's a great plan. Uh, the first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians are outbursts of praise to the glory of God's plans, of God's deeds in Christ. Now last week we began looking at chapter 3 and as I pointed out, the very beginning of chapter 3 almost looks like Paul's going to start a prayer and then he gets sidetracked. For 13 verses, he gets sidetracked just to, to, to kind of send at home uh, God's incredible plans. This evening, we're going to take a look at the second half of Paul's tangent, if you will, focusing on Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13. If you stand with me, we'll read that together. Uh, but I, I'm actually going to read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, just so we kind of get that whole thought process of Paul. He writes... For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they're for your glory. 
Father, we thank you for this word that you have preserved all this time and for being the recipients of it. I pray that it would be more than mere rhetoric, than mere words on a page, or fodder for a sermon. I pray, Lord, that it would be what you say it is, a living word that cuts us to the quick. And even if familiar, Lord, I pray that you would do a new work in us, that you would move the mountains in our hearts and our minds of, of resistance and unbelief and cause us to be more like you. Amen. You may be seated. is reminding us in all his exuberance about God and the new people that God is making through Jesus a new people by the way that God calls the church he in all of this he's reminding us that hey I'm a prisoner I'm writing all of this great stuff from prison not only a prisoner in general but Paul reminds us that he is a prisoner for doing the exact thing that God told him to do preach this gospel to the Gentiles in fact Paul says he's a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, in our culture, I would guess you'd agree with me, it's not a desirable thing to go to prison. Uh, but in some noble way, if you're, uh, it, it, it could be seen as noble if you're imprisoned for, say, a good cause. For example, if you're protesting some important cause and uh, you're being put in jail, it could be seen as a badge of honor. Being persecuted for the sake of good could even be seen as courageous and maybe encourage those who are on your side. That's because we live in an individualistic culture where we're supposed to stand out. It's, in fact, it's a little bit expected. I was getting a haircut the other day. My haircuts never stand out because I get the same one for the last 20 years. But uh, these two kids that I used to tutor at Parkview were there. They're about 11 years old now, twin brothers. They come in with their dad. Dad, I want a blue mohawk. And then the other one says, I want a red faux hawk. And he's like, okay. And so they get the, the mohawk and the faux hawk. And that's just completely normal in our culture. Like standing out, being an individual is cool. But in Paul's day and culture, society was communal. And you know, you hear me say that all the time. And blah, blah, blah. There's Chris talking about how it was back then again. But the last thing that you would think about in Paul's day was wanting to stand out or to be different. So, if your spiritual leader, the guy who's writing all these letters, Paul, is in prison, boy, that's going to cause some problems maybe to your faith. First of all, it could cause embarrassment. I don't want to have a faith where my leader stands out weird. Or two, it could cause despair. I mean, if your leader's in prison, maybe your religion isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Either way, it could be discouraging. But if we listen closely to what Paul is saying, this message isn't about Paul at all. He deflects everything onto God. It's about God and God's love and God's wisdom and God's grace. Notice how frequently, even in this chapter, Paul writes in the passive. So, the stewardship of God's grace was given to him. The revelation of the mystery was made known to him. Paul was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him according to the working of God's power. It's all about God. Paul is deflecting everything, saying, if I've got any message here or any kind of authority or any kind of status, it's all because God is the one who did it to me. God is the prime actor. Paul is acted upon. And now we pick up verse 8 where Paul writes, to me. 
the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I'm two for two on unfathomable, by the way. Three for three now. I thought I was going to screw that one up. But anyway, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery that for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So here Paul actually puts a new spin on an old Greek word. In our, in our Bibles it says, to me the very least of all the saints. But that's because there's no real English word to describe what's going on in Greek. If we are really literal to what Paul is saying, we might say something, English teachers, plug your ears, I am the leaster of these, or I am the leastest of all the saints. Paul, see, is ever aware that his apostleship, his, his special calling, is dependent, all dependent, on God and God's power. Paul was a persecutor of the church before Jesus confronted him and convicted him and enlisted him into his service. So God's grace is given to this man, Paul, the leastest of the saints, if you will, to preach to the Gentiles this incredible storehouse of wealth in Christ. And up to this point, Paul has been busily telling us of the riches in Christ. He says that all things in heaven and earth will be summed up, made whole in Christ. We've had two chapters thus far telling us of these riches in Christ, and yet Christ Jesus is so abundantly full of substance and good news and wisdom that to us and our limited abilities, He is unfathomable, impossible to understand in His fullness. Paul is charged with preaching Jesus, even though there are not enough sermons in the world to come close to describing who Jesus really is, which I think is great. I've got real job security. But God revealed the mystery to Paul, the mystery of how God was going to make these people, consisting of Jews and non-Jews, a new creation. The mystery of how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and current reign make this new community possible. Paul is now about to share God's incredible plan. And you remember how I said a person's plans often reveals the wisdom? Well, here Paul speaks of the manifold wisdom of God. We're about ready to see God's plan, and it's going to show all of God's wisdom. Paul uses this funny word manifold in the English. It's polypoikilos in Greek, and it means you get the poly in the beginning, and poikilos is like colorful or variated, so many variated, many dimensional. It's actually a word he probably ripped off from Euripides and some Greek poets, and they would use it to describe a tapestry, the back of a tapestry, and how many different colors came together, or the hues that would come out in a, in a garland with many different colors of flowers. And Paul is saying that when you look at God's wisdom, when you look at His character, when you look at what He is and what He's done and what He says, every time you see Him, you see Him from a different perspective, a different angle that is equally glorious and fantastic. The, uh, the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God. Paul is about to tell us about this wisdom of God. He's about ready to reveal it. Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know God's plan, His wisdom and action? I give to you the unveiling. There it is. Pretty soon. It's you. And the next one. 
And it's Nancy. No, it's the simple things. It's the simple things. That's Benjamin, by the way, just two years ago. Isn't that crazy? And the next one. And it's the acts of the church, the repeated actions, the sacraments. Next. And it's eating together. It's the mundane. It's the love that we share. And finally, it's the downright weird. <laughs> love you, Jim Donath. Paul says the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. Not just our church. That was just fun because you recognize a lot of that. But the church in the world. It's, the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The angelic beings, the angels and even the demons are looking at us to see God's wisdom. Are you serious? Have you thought about what that, would, that, what that means? What the implications are of that? Is this some kind of joke? I mean, isn't there another plan? So it, I remember, <laughs> I was in 1998, I think it was actually 99, it was 99. I was in the Coast Guard at this unit down in the Bay Area where we would respond to chemical and oil spills. Uh, it's called the strike team. And I know that you don't ever associate in your mind Coast Guard and driving a semi-truck, but I kid you not, half of us were trained how to drive big rig trucks to get our response equipment places. So I was 24 years old, and um, I had to do bring our pump load up to Edmonds, Washington, right near where Ian's from, and so I get there the night before we're going to do this training exercise, and I pull in where the hotel is, uh, I think probably ex the extended stay there, if you know it's across from that strip mall, Ian, and all, there's this lineup on the side of the road where trucks are allowed to park, semi-trucks, well, it was all full. So there's a strip mall across the street from the hotel, and I get a hold of one of the business owners, you know, there's like 12 stores there, and one of them says, yeah, no problem, you can park there tonight, but just have it gone by 8. Like, no worries, I lock it up go to my bed. I'm sound asleep until 5, eh, about 4.30 in the morning. I get a call from a tow truck driver. It says, you know, this is your truck and I'm going to tow this truck. And So I grab all my gear and I go out there. And this guy's just being belligerent and uh, I'm like, hey, sorry, I got permission. He didn't have anything of it. He saw me and probably saw two things. One, this kid's 24. He's probably afraid of me. Two, he's government. He can probably pay whatever price I charge. And so we go back and forth, back and forth, and finally he says, you're not leaving till you pay. And he puts a chain around my bumper. Now, this is a tow truck that's like for cars. It's not the ones that can haul a bus or a semi-truck. So it's basically a little tiny truck compared to the one I was driving. Keep in mind that this is one of the largest loads we had. It was over 70,000 gross pounds. And two, it was 4.30 in the morning and I was getting agitated. <laughs> so I started the engine. I said, sir... In 10 seconds, I'm going to back up and your chain will break. This is, a, you know, this is a federal response vehicle. You can't hold it up. I'm going to leave now. And he looked at me with a blank stare. And I got in the truck and he took the chain away and I drove away. <laughs> really? Like that's your plan? The little chain on the bumper? That's, that's really going to work? You need a plan B, dude. <clears throat> really? The manifold wisdom of God is made known through us? through the church around the world? Have you seen any of the headlines throughout history? It's not all that great. Doesn't God have some kind of plan B? Well, apparently not. Paul says that God's plan is part of His eternal purpose. 
which you carried out in Lord in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't some like band-aid thing. It's his plan from the beginning. And I admit, what first came to mind were two thoughts. First, I hope there's a plan B still. <laughs> I know the Bible says there's not. But then I got to thinking a little bit, and I was reading F.F. Bruce, a famous commentator on Ephesians, and he says that the church is God's kind of pilot project. So, you know, like a pilot show will come out, and if people like it, well, then the show will continue. And I was sort of, hey, if we're just a pilot project, we get a little extra grace so we can make some mistakes. That's kind of what I was thinking. My second reaction was to say, sure, the church is far from perfect, but... Look at all of God's wisdom that has been revealed in the church. You know, and it makes me want to talk about things like how for all of its faults, the church has made some forward progress in breaking down walls of race and nationalism and sexism. It's gone somewhere in the right direction. And I want to say, hey, look at how some of the followers of Jesus have started, say, hospitals for the first time, or how universities were created in the beginning to be theological centers of education. How Christians in the, in the beginning adopted kids out of the Roman Empire who were deformed or just unwanted by Roman families who would have been left to die. I want to say hey, we can take this thing about equality being self-evident for granted because of the gospel, because of Jews and Gentiles being made one and no longer slave or free or male nor female, as it says in Galatians. I want to preach about how we still have a long way to go But we can really make a difference in the world. Those are things I love preaching about. Those are things I think you love hearing about. Those are biblical things. And I'm a lot like you. I want the Bible to tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, man. I want to get on with it. Tell me how to be a better person. Besides, we sure don't want God to look dumb if His manifold wisdom is being displayed in us, right? The problem with preaching on those types of things about how we should live is I don't think that's Paul's point here in Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. Oh, Paul's going to get to how we should live. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to basically say, if you believe chapters 1, 2, and 3, this then is how you should live. Oh, there's a whole bunch of other sermons will be in this thing till July. So don't worry, we're going to get to how to live. But this passage doesn't allow us to do that, I don't think. In fact, this passage reminds me a lot of another story. One that Dan read earlier. The story of Jesus leaving Jericho and heading up to Jerusalem. And just before he gets to Jerusalem, he makes an odd stop. He stops outside, sends two of his disciples to go get the colt of a donkey to come back. I I think Jesus is probably in pretty good shape. I think he could have made it on foot the rest of the way. Most people did. But he goes and gets a donkey. Now, oftentimes, people with means would have an extra donkey around uh, for dignitaries, teachers, things like that. So it's not that surprising that Jesus would get this donkey. But what is important is the statement that Jesus is making by going into Jerusalem the way he goes into Jerusalem riding on that donkey versus the statement that the crowds are making about him. You see, in the prophet Zechariah, there's a beautiful promise from God to the people in captivity. And God promises to send a king who's going to bring peace. He's going to ride onto the scene on the colt, the foal of a donkey and not a war horse. 
Jesus deliberately chooses to come into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, not because he's tired, because he's making a statement about the type of king he is. The people don't want that type of king, however. They don't want God's plan A. They want plan B. They think they want a king who will make their nation prominent, who will kick out the occupying Roman forces, and that's why they meet Jesus with those, with palm branches. See, centuries earlier, before Rome occupied Israel, Syria occupied Israel. The Syrians desecrated the temple, the heartbeat of Israel, oppressed the people, and then a man named Judas Maccabeus gathered the people of Israel kicked out Antiochus Epiphany and the Syrians, kicked them out. And they had decades of relative peace, of relative independence as a nation. Well, one of their great leaders, Jonathan, was murdered by a foreign king in an act of treachery. And the people of Israel were terrified. The surrounding nations were plotting to destroy Israel. And then Jonathan's little brother, Simon, said enough is enough. And he gathered the people and encouraged the people and fortified their positions. And when he rode into Jerusalem on a horse, how did the people greet him? But with palm branches. Palm branches representing power of a powerful king coming. In fact, it was minted on the coinage around that time. He consecrated the temple and ruled. He was a powerful military leader, able to crush his enemies. But see, in our story, despite Jesus coming in humbly on a donkey, the people want him to be a mighty savior who would reestablish Israel as thriving and independent at the expense of other nations. They wanted Jesus to be a king like the Maccabees. They wanted power. They wanted their leader to flex earthly muscle, political clout. And they didn't appreciate, or maybe they couldn't appreciate, the manifold wisdom of God at work. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. Came in humbly on a donkey. Gave himself over for the people who were frustrated that he wasn't what they expected. He gave himself over to the authorities who were threatened by his message. He died on a cross, plan A, and rose from the grave, plan A, and defeated death, plan A, and ascended and now reigns over all things. Yes, that's plan A. And the Father sent the Holy Spirit to draw together, to teach and equip the church, His plan A. And on Palm Sunday, we remember how the people shouted, Hosanna! Literally, save, we pray. Jesus came to save, but not in the way that people expected, certainly not in the way people wanted. And I think of how easily I can identify with those crowds. How Jesus' apparent weakness, if I'm honest, it's revolting to me. I like to feel powerful and in control. In terms of Ephesians and the church, I think of all of our sinfulness, mine included, our weakness, our ineffectiveness, it's embarrassing. It's revolting. And I think how if we're God's plan A, His plan to reveal His manifold wisdom to the universe, how we must be an embarrassment too. I wish we had a plan B. Or do I? See, 
I'm not so sure I wish for a plan B anymore. What if the wisdom of God is revealed through the church to the heavens and to the earth? And what if that's not so much based on our performance or our mission, but on the very fact that we exist in the first place? Eugene Peterson quotes Gregory of Nyssa as he lists the juxtapositions that make up life in the church. He writes, Life is created by death. The attainment of glory in the church by dishonor. Blessing by curse. Power by weakness. And Peterson continues, This is the church as God gives it to us. The real church. Are you going to receive what God gives us? Or make up your own? See, what if God's wisdom, the wisdom that causes angels to marvel and worship and demons to squirm in frustration and defeat, is revealed not in how polished we are as the church. It's not about us. God's wisdom and glory is revealed in His love and His humility and His commitment to the people He created. God's wisdom is revealed in His redemption of people like you and like me. Even us. Sure. Hey, once we grasp and marvel at it, I mean, we're taken with the love of Jesus, our actions are going to reflect it. They, they already do in so many ways. I think of the stories I see in your faces. I know. I know the love of Christ pumping through your veins. We're going to grow in love for one another as we continue to follow Him. We're going to forgive more freely. We'll serve We'll sacrifice time and money and talents for the good of our neighbors to the glory of God. But we are going to continue to sin and to fail and to be embarrassing all at the same time. God's wisdom is not revealed in how well we behave before the, the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's revealed in the fact that through Jesus and His grace, we are God's people despite ourselves. Friends, that is good news. That's good news. What qualifications do you have to be part of the family of God? To receive forgiveness and eternal life and the mission of the kingdom of God? I don't really have a good enough resume for that one. But Jesus qualifies us. Will you receive this good news through faith and repentance? Would you pray with me? I thank you for this word, Lord, and uh, confess I still struggle with really accepting it. It doesn't make any sense in our world. Oh, but how refreshing and freeing it is to know that we are part of your family part of your plan, not because of our qualifications, but because you gave yourself for us. Thank you for the freedom in that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stop measuring ourselves with other people or impossible standards. Lord, I pray for a release of guilt and shame in the people in this room and myself. 
And I pray, Lord, for the courage to turn toward you, to repent, to, to die to the old ways that lead to death, that we could live in this new freedom as part of your family. Thank you, Lord, that your plan comes together. Amen.